It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Would you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week is the guy who stood me up the last like three weeks. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> well, someone's been gone for the past three weeks plus. That's so true. I, I have been uh, difficult to get a hold there's of. There's kind of been a lot of things going on around here that I have to take care of. Yeah, you are the guy. Since no one else is here to help me, <laughs> I have to do it myself. It's very true. All right. <laughs> Justin Bursley is a guest. I think you probably are our most frequent guest on the podcast. You think so? Yeah, dude. I think you've been no. on the podcast more than anybody Come else. Come on. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, this week we're going to chat about the neighborhood's first report. We released a report back in the beginning of October. It's a report on this little neighborhood that we've been working on here in my hometown of Brainerd. And Justin is one of the kind of principal guys that helped out in doing these projects and putting this stuff together. So Justin, Neighborhoods First. Yes. Let's talk first of all about these photos on the front. I had a little bit of fun with Adobe InDesign here, putting this cover together. But these aren't my photos, are they? No, they're not. They are photos taken by participants in the Snapshot Brainerd digital photo scavenger hunt we had back in... I can't remember what month it was. Yeah, I think it was like June Yeah, it was the middle of summer. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a sec. Because I'd like to set this up by explaining a little bit of what we did over the course of really March through September to kind of prep the ground for putting this thing out. Yeah. What was the digital photo shoot? Basically what it was is we had a contest, an event on a Saturday afternoon. We, we had uh, folks get teams together, teams of four, I believe. We wanted... One young person, one person between the ages of, say, 10 and 20, one person between the ages of 20 and 40, and then someone that was over the age of 40. We wanted to get multi-generational teams. We provided each team with clues, nine clues. One of them, for example, was high energy. So the team would have to go out into the neighborhood and find something that portrayed high energy to them, to them right? Yeah. What they thought you know, represented that phrase. And right. they took a picture of it. And like I said, there was nine clues that we gave. And um, the idea was to get people out and walking through the neighborhood. <laughs> kind of funny because we gave the clues and then like... A bunch of people went yeah, in cars. Nine out of the 10 teams <laughs> ran to their cars and, and went out into the neighborhood. So, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, that, was that wasn't one of our rules. Maybe if we decide to do it again, that might be <laughs> something to consider. No, no automobiles. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, you know, and to their credit, 
it's not a very walk friendly. No, I don't blame them either. at all. I mean, I don't. Right. Yeah, I don't blame them for getting in their cars, but and it's instinctual too. It's the first sure. thing to think of when they're sure. when they go somewhere. What do they do? They get in their car. So we had everybody do this digital photo contest. I mean, the idea was let's get people out there looking at the neighborhood a little bit differently, talking to their neighbors, meeting each other, having a little bit more maybe friction in a positive way than what they normally have in the neighborhood. How about the Ride the Rails deal? So Ride the Rails, we put together a bicycling event in the neighborhood. We met at the elementary school. That's kind of been our focal point in Century, located in the neighborhood. We met there and we took a bicycle tour of the neighborhood where the old streetcar lines went. And you so graciously were our tour guide. I was a tour guide. <laughs> and you can actually check <laughs> out the videos from that event are online. We made a map and then we geo-referenced each of the locations that we stopped at and chatted. As someone who grew up here, yeah. I found out just like a year ago that we used to have a streetcar line. I mean, I, I had heard, you know, when they had dug up old road projects that there was rails underneath, but I'd never put two and two together and pondered that it was a streetcar line. And we actually had through our target neighborhood, and we targeted this neighborhood because not only is it the one that abuts the Taco John's and the whole thing that we focused on a couple of years ago, but it's a rundown, dilapidated neighborhood. And the notion is, you know, if we can start to fix this place, we can start to fix any place. So let's give it a look. And Man, I found out they used to have a rail line that ran right through there. That's awesome. Yeah, I had no idea either. And we rode it. Yeah. I had my sweet teal green. Oh, you did have uh, that girly uh, girl bike. <laughs> that was pretty yeah, bad. It was, it was a cruiser. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was interesting because as we went through there, we were able to show how, you know, the streets that were built on the rail line are dramatically different than the ones that were not. Mm. They're actually narrower today have a much more neighborhood scope and focus for the most part. And, you know, the character of the buildings was yeah. actually quite a bit better on those streets, even though that streetcar has been gone for, I'm going to guess it hasn't operated for 70 years, mm -hmm. 80 years. Yeah. A couple of the other things that we did that I want to highlight before we get into this report, you put out some benches. Yeah, the pallet benches. Yeah. That's kind of the, you know, <laughs> go-to the tactical it's urbanism a, it's a 101 go -to -to right. project, right? Yeah, I had a friend not to be named who is uh, high up in an environmental group yeah. that I was meeting with who said, you know, I was telling him about this whole project. He goes, please tell me you're not putting benches out there made out of pallets. Chair bombing. Yeah, I was like, please tell me you're not doing that cheesy stuff. But we did. You know, you have a neighborhood where there's literally like very little thought of a pedestrian. Now, understand. This is a gridded neighborhood, right? I mean, it's not like we're talking about some suburb in the middle of nowhere. Right. This is an urban area that at one point was filled with pedestrians and not automobiles. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you would put out a bench or something completely goes with the historical character. But you went and got some pallets. Yeah, I got some pallets from the grocer there in the neighborhood. They just gave them to us. They didn't charge us anything. But... You know, had some screws laying around. We took off a couple. You actually came over one morning yeah, and that, we did it in my driveway. That was backbreaking work. <laughs> yeah, very. Uh, we did rip them apart. They were pretty solid. Remember the sledgehammers we had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember just saying to heck with this. And yeah. I started just like smashing them <laughs> with a sledgehammer. Right. Yeah, that worked a lot better, actually. So, yeah, we put the two benches there. Then we put lettering on them. One said, smile, sit a while. And the other said, take a load off. Right, and right. And we also did videos on those that are. On the A Better Brainerd website. We were trying to make it kind of fun. Right. We were notified by the city that those pallet benches had to go. 
even though we got some positive feedback from people that have been using them, I didn't tell you this. Actually, I haven't seen you for over a week and a half now, but yeah. yesterday in church, mm-hmm. a woman comes up to me after church and does one of these, are you Chuck Marone? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and she goes, oh, I really love the work you guys are doing. You guys did the benches made out of pallets, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Nice. <laughs> Generally around here, the feedback that we get is not nearly as positive as the feedback we get in other parts of the well, country. But I would say in the neighborhood, the feedback is always positive. The neighborhood, that's true. I mean, the the feedback has been really good. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, then we we got a notification from the city saying that we had to take these benches out because yeah. they were... It was funny because <laughs> as I looked into it, the problem was actually the pallet construction. Mm-hmm. They didn't care that we were putting out benches. They just cared that they were made out of pallet wood. Right. And my understanding is that and this is typical like reactionary government, there was some schmo who built something stupid out of pallets at Mm -hmm. one point. So instead of like dealing with that issue, they actually made some ordinance that (laughs) said you can't build anything out of pallet wood. Of course, right. (laughs) Because pallet wood, you know, when it's ripped apart is so discernible from other wood. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I almost feel like we should build like some type of big, cupola, you know, What's some ornate a, thing out of pallet. A pallet wood. castle. A pallet castle with like fine grained, like little nuances <laughs> to it. Okay. One of the other projects that you went out and did was the flags Yeah, at the intersection on Mill. Describe oh. Mill Avenue. Um, a okay. Bit. So Mill Avenue is your typical Strode type. It is Strode. <laughs> it's very Strode. It's a county road. It splits the neighborhood in two. Cars travel extremely fast. At this intersection, we decided to put these flags on. There's commercial businesses on each corner. Do you know what popped into my mind this morning? That was probably one of the streetcar stops. Well, as immature as that neighborhood was when the streetcar line came in, and by immature, I don't mean childish. I mean not very progressed in terms of the development pattern. The streetcar line would have gone in and then literally like 20 years later, before the neighborhood really had a chance to grow and take root and blossom, you would have had the change in the development pattern. And basically we switched to an automobile pattern. So, but my guess is because that's kind of like a commercial node in the middle of the residential neighborhood, that that was probably a streetcar stop. Possibly. You know, I'm guessing that it was planned as a streetcar stop because you have the mill properties there. Yeah. Four corners there of that intersection are commercial. Yeah. And the rail line would have turned right there. Yeah. It was going south and it would have turned and and head to the west. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that that was a a little node. Anyway, the intersection has some It's just a terrible intersection. There's, you know, it's Strody, there's large parking lots there. There's fast moving traffic. There's it has the horrid center there, turn lane. Yeah, and there's even right turn lanes. The waste yeah. of space lane. So it's yeah. just this terrible place to cross a street. Right. So we decided to improve that situation. <laughs> Understanding we, we don't have any money. No, we're a nonprofit. We're right. out there with a very tiny budget. So. You put up some flags. Well, let me tell you, I first heard about this. You told me about it before we went to Salt Lake City, and I kind of laughed at it. Can I say something, too? Yeah, I, cool. I've seen, like, a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, I've been trying to immerse myself in the tactical urbanism. I don't remember seeing this. And it might be like a Fred Flintstone thing where, like, I saw it, put it in the back recesses of my mind, and then dream it up later and, like, claim it as my own. Yeah. I was sitting there, and I got up, like, one morning, I'm in the shower, and I'm like oh, we really need to put flags up so people can get across this. And then, yeah, we've started to run into them in other places. Yeah, so we're out in Salt Lake City, and we remember we went on the walk from the hotel, and it started right. downpouring, and we yeah. went under that little 
overhang on that building. And yeah. And we look over and here are these orange flags. Yeah. Like, dude, yeah. here they are. Here they are. Here so they are. anyway, what it is, is basically we just <laughs> place a flag holder at each of the corners and then put these orange flags that you can, And you made the flag holders. Made the flag holders, the flags we actually bought, but we could make those too. Um, we wanted nice sturdy ones that would last a long time and they are still there. What did you make the flag holders out of? Three inch PVC pipe with a pipe cap. Yeah. And it was real simple. They drilled a hole in the bottom so rain could get through it. And then we also made a small sign for each of the flag holders. Are they being used? Yeah. I actually drive by there every day because obviously can't bike to work in this environment. All right. <laughs> no, but when I do drive by... I, and I by do, that, you don't mean cold weather. Right, 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 mean, right. It's hostile. It, it actually <laughs> is very dangerous to bike through here. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, when I go by every day, I kind of take a mental, just a quick calculation, and I can see that the flags are moving from side to side. And yeah, every once in a while, you, you see someone walking across the street holding an orange flag. Those weren't completely well-received either, though. By the neighborhood they were, right. and we've gotten nothing but positive feedback from the neighborhood. But, you know, other parties who have asked to remain unnamed <laughs> have said, you know, we're not very happy with this. Please don't blog about us, but, you know, we want them gone. We didn't go through the proper channels for getting them. We did. We the- said we're going to ask uh, forgiveness, not permission. Yeah, we're going to go out there and do it. Because it's safe and it's what's right. Seriously, if we had asked permission, we, what would, we yeah. never would have gone. No. And they're still out there. So obviously it wasn't, you know, they haven't gone out and taken them down. Right. We're kind of hinting now. <laughs> I'm not saying that we're challenging them, but man, if they took them down, uh, I think there'd be some ticked off people right now. Yeah, A neighborhood where we've done a little bit of intervention, a little bit of getting people together Now we sit down towards the end of the summer. Oh, you and I out painting crosswalks in, painting bike lanes, Mm -hmm. doing speed studies. We're going to talk about that a little bit here. But remember remember all the people we met at like 11 at night were out. What are you guys doing out here with headlamps on? Well, and what are you doing out here walking, you know, (laughs) in the middle of the night? Well, I'm, I'm a mom. I work. This is the only time I can go. My kids are in bed sleeping. You know, it's the mm-hmm. only time I can get out of the house. It's safe to walk this time of night. It was fascinating to get to meet the people of this neighborhood in a way that you never would in a public meeting. You right, know, right. if you said, oh, we're having a public hearing, come here, stand up at the podium, speak your piece. Basically, all of the people that we met in the neighborhood, you would never meet any of them at any of those kind of meetings. No, no. To me, that was the coolest part about it. Okay, so we go out and we say, we have eight projects that we think will incrementally make this neighborhood a little bit better. Eight projects that we think the city should do, that the public should undertake, that are designed to change the investment approach of the city from one of horizontal expansion to one of making small incremental investments in a neighborhood so it can essentially get its mojo back, right? Mm-hmm. So we can start to improve it. And is there anything that we need to talk about here at the beginning? Because I know I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the intro? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you know, reading through it a couple times, it's, I don't know, harsh. Harsh. <laughs> provocative. Okay, maybe provocative. Yeah. We're certainly laying it all out there. You right. Know? When we look at, you know, in specific, the city of Brainerd which the idea of this report is not just the city of Brainerd, but actually to set up a model that others can copy as well. But here, you know, you do have this sense of urgency. I mean, four 
out of every 10 cents that we spend here locally comes from the state government. Mm -hmm. And those funds have proven to be very fragile in the past. And, and we struggle every year to make the budget work when we're talking about one, two, three percent change in the budget. If for some reason local government aid didn't come through, if there was a big economic correction again, which I think you and I kind of personally anticipate at some point here, mm -hmm. the whole notion of losing 42% of your budget should scare the heck out of people and say, wow, we need to think differently about things. So yeah, this is kind of hopefully trying to create a sense of urgency here. So let's talk about these projects. Project number one. Why don't you explain project number one and yeah. what we're trying to do and, Pro and why? Sure. This is actually one of my favorites. I, this one and maybe the seventh one are my two favorites. But project number one basically takes place on H Street, which is runs in front of Lowell Elementary School, kind of the focal point of the neighborhood, the middle of the neighborhood. It's the east-west um, kind of, I think in the hierarchical road network that's been established like ridiculously in that neighborhood, it is the arterial, right? Right, right. Yeah. I actually found out it's a state aid road too. Yeah. So... Rah, rah. <laughs> yeah, we love state aid um, So anyway, the traffic there travels, you know, much faster than it should be traveling just because of the design of the road. I went out there at 10 o'clock one morning with a radar gun that we purchased for this project. And I sat underneath this tree on my little blanket and radared cars as I went by for two hours. And we determined that 64% of the traffic was traveling at speeds in excess of 25 miles an hour. That's uh, essentially two out of three cars were going faster than they should have in the neighborhood. Right, and the, and the speed limit in this neighborhood is 30 miles an hour, which is ridiculous to begin with because right. that's just yeah, way too fast for a neighborhood school. Little kids on the way to school and what have you. Yeah, so yeah. what we did is we went out one morning early, early before your girls went to school because that's the only time you could... <laughs> or do you, we went out at like five in the morning or something, yeah, just crazy. Was, I'm not a morning person either, so <laughs> no. it was way too early. So what we, we chalked uh, parallel parking lanes, a bike lane, and then we left room for the two driving lanes, a westbound and an eastbound, and then another bike lane, and then on the on the other edge, another parallel parking lane. Mm -hmm. So essentially what we did is we narrowed down the design of the driving areas yeah. and the, the road in general. So um, using chalk, we established bike lanes. Right. I insisted we use chalk yeah. instead of something else because <laughs> we knew we were pushing the boundaries here and wanted something that literally would wash away with the next rain, which just happened to be the next day. Right. And we used the, um, the baseball line chalker, yeah, yeah. which was your idea. I wanted to use the paint stick, which I'm glad we didn't. Have you noticed? Yeah. Like, it's still out out the parking there. lot. And our it's landlord there. is kind of not happy with us. Is he really? <laughs> well, he's just like, Hey man, why are you guys using spray paint? I'm like, it's not spray paint. It's <laughs> chalk. That's supposed to be temporary. Is he really? Yeah. He is such a cranky old cuss. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we just thought we'd try out this temporary stuff, and it's there well, three he, months later. Uh, he didn't like say he was going to bill us for the oh, for crying to make out. it better, but what anyway, a, what a baby! Yeah, so we used I want to say it was let's see, uh, 175 pounds of chalk. Really, is wow. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then we went out there. So we did these parking lanes and bike lanes. I went out there that same morning, same time of the day as I did the other speed study, and took the radar gun and, and did the same exact thing. And that time. We figured that only 35% of the drivers were traveling in excess of 25 miles an hour. Quite a dramatic increase just for a one block change in streetscape. The thing that was remarkable to me is before we did it, you know, 18% of drivers were going over the speed limit. When we got done, you only recorded one 
driver going over the speed limit in the entire two hours. And that person was only going one mile an hour over. Yeah. The theory was when we put this out, when we narrowed the lanes down, we said, this is going to slow down traffic. Yeah. And the coolest part was I got out there five minutes later, there's a biker coming down in this newly striped bike lane. Right. <laughs> right. So I jump out from my bush and I think I kind of startled them a little bit because I was, <laughs> I wasn't trying to hide. I was just kind of back a little bit. Sure. Just out of the way. And I ran out there, I'm, you know, hey, hey, how's it going? He goes, whoa, whoa, who, who, who are you? <laughs> and I talked to him, explained to him who I was and what we were doing. And yeah, he thought it was great. It's fascinating yeah. because, you know, the reaction of the city is who's going to bike and, you know, this is a waste of time, a waste of effort. But yeah, yeah, as soon as we put it out there, people started using it. And I actually got a photo of the guy and it's on the last page of the yeah, report. Yeah, it's cool. So, I like yeah, it. You can see the bike lanes there. Seriously, as an engineer... I knew we would get this critique a little bit. And I heard this when we published the report, like, okay, Chuck, well, that was temporary. People won't always drive slow. Once they get used to the new configuration, you know, you just did something different. So they slowed down because it was odd. And, and I get that. But the idea here is that, you know, the theory is, and it's based on observations from other communities, when you narrow the lanes in an urban environment like this, people are going to drive slower. Mm -hmm. That's been my history. That's what I've seen in other places. We did it here on a very temporary basis. Right. And now we're suggesting that we do it on a slightly more permanent basis, not something that would be concrete or medians, but just simply going out and painting. How much is this project going to cost? This one together would be about $6,000 just for the cost of the paint to stripe the whole length of the street. Okay. Um, what we did was just the one city block. Yeah, we did the block, but we're talking for the report. We're saying, let's do the whole, yeah. the whole street. Yep. Project number two, then two is similar to the first project. It's bike lanes on first Avenue Northeast. This street is unique because it has, it's a rail corridor, a rail line corridor going from the rail yard maintenance shop down to the paper mill, which is no longer an operation. It, it, it's but. funny because people who don't grasp how small of a town Brainerd is yeah. and saw these layouts and design, because I, I was using that street mix and yeah. the street mix doesn't have like abandoned railroad track <laughs> as an option. Well, it's not abandoned. I mean, I've, no, it, you, it's like one train a week when, or the, less, when the mill right. was going, yeah. right. Oh, yeah. The so, mill's not going. That's uh, true. I haven't seen any trains lately. Right. No, it's been a while. Yeah. So we put it in and people thought, wow, Brainerd has a light rail line because that's the only... <laughs> no, that's a cargo train. <laughs> it kind of makes for a sad neighborhood because you have this vast, vast space oh, with yeah. like nothing in it. Actually, the feedback that I was getting from the city was, well, we can't put anything that would go anywhere near that rail line. Crazy. But anyway, this is a, essentially the same project, just perpendicular to it, connecting the other node in the neighborhood. Right. Same price, right. six grand. So we're up to $12,000 now. Oh, train uh -oh. coming. Speaking of trains, mm -hmm. uh, this has actually become one of the podcast favorite moments. <laughs> uh, when the train comes by our office. So we're going to pause here, take a break while the train goes by. And then we will continue. Did, did I already go by? You just replaced the rail last yeah. week. You were gone all last week, but right. they were out here working all week. So yeah. maybe they made like... Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe quieter? it's quieter. I don't know. It is quieter. Bit, this is a quite a bit quieter than, yeah. than before. Wow. Wow. Is it seriously? Is yeah. it going by right now? It's going by. Wow. Okay. I guess we don't have to pause the podcast. Cool. It would shake the building yeah. before like books were like going to fall off the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> we are 
what would you say? 30 feet? Yeah. From if that, the track? Right. Yeah, yeah, maybe 20. 25, I think yeah. Rick said, yeah. Yeah. We're Blues Brother-esque. Close. <laughs> All right. Project number three. Okay. So, yeah, this is a shared space one. Using crosshatch paint across this intersection just to notify drivers like, hey, this is a place that's not just for you. There's a lot of different people and modes of transportation in this area. It has residential development on one side and on the other side it has commercial development it's kind of a high traffic area of the neighborhood this was kind of a bizarre place too because you've got the volume of traffic is not huge i mean the volume of traffic is not huge anywhere in our city yet you know the speed of the cars going through here is quite substantial because of the geometry of the street the way that you know it's designed to be really really wide they have the handicapped sign i put this in the report if you're on you know, the page before you run on right there, if you flip back, you can see that huh. the city went out and put up like a handicap sign, but it doesn't face the street with the fast moving traffic. It faces the street where the pedestrians would actually be trying to cross. Mm-hmm. And I was like looking at this going, what are you trying to tell the handicapped person? Like, we know you're here, <laughs> yeah. huh. you know, cause I know that there are people. And when we were out there, we saw old people with walkers. We saw people in wheelchairs and scooters. People with little kids. People with little kids. So there are a lot of people crossing here, but I just thought that was bizarre that you would point basically a handicap warning sign, (laughs) but have it go perpendicular to the flow of the fast moving traffic. Yeah. It's crazy. It's not shocking, but well, (laughs) right. It's not shocking. There's a lot of little things like this that we see throughout the neighborhood. Remember the, the speed truck in front of the school? Yeah. The the, the radar gun, the sign of failure. (laughs) Yeah. Did you know, just on that topic, Yeah. this is out in front of the school. They put a sign, one of those police trailers. Yeah. The police trailer with the digital display of how fast you're driving because people would drive really fast because the strode is really, really wide through the middle of this neighborhood. And you know, there's kids there. And so you got a problem that was there for the week when the police officer wasn't there, but every single day, I mean, Mm. I bring my kids to school there every single day. There's a police officer sitting there. Mm. And I think about, you know, not only do we pay a gargantuan amount of money to build this excessively wide street, that's just bad for the neighborhood. Not only do we lose investment value because who wants to live on this nasty wide street, but we also spend every day, money for a police officer to sit out there for half an hour whose sole purpose is to be a presence there to remind people to drive slow. Yeah. I mean, for $6,000 worth of paint, what kind of results will we get? Seriously. Anyway. So number four. Yeah. Number four is the pedestrian crossing. It'd be one block south of the crosshatch intersection. This one, just 400 bucks, just put in a something a pedestrian crossing there yeah to give pedestrians an area to, to give get them a chance the safely right and also to let drivers obviously know that there's people here you and i went out and did this one in the middle of the night yeah this is the one we did with duct tape we did with uh, duct tape that actually worked out fairly well yeah it was a pain in the neck to sweep the street because we wanted to get all the sand kind of off where we we're going to be yeah. taping and it held up pretty well mm-hmm. i mean it, it stayed there for a good couple weeks yeah and it looked good And people used it. Yeah. Number five relates to number four very closely. Number five is a pedestrian corridor. Why don't you describe this one with the lane widths? I think that's the most hilarious thing about this one. What do we have here? Other side. Remember when we taped it out? It's like, how exactly wide is this? Right. I think we should give people an idea of what the adjacent land use is. 
to this corridor? Oh, sure. Okay, so on the north side of this street, let's call it a street for now, yeah. um, <laughs> it's just this massive brick wall. No windows. It's just this huge. You, you know what that was, right? It was was it a furniture store? No, no, no. That was Cub Foods. That was oh, the grocery store, the okay. big box before it moved to the this location right now. Okay, so that's like a former big box store. Okay, so it's just now this basically sitting empty. hideous, you know, huge wall. Yeah, it's just a big wall. Um, and then on the south side, there is a parking lot for a strip mall and a KFC with another parking lot on the west side and another parking lot on the east side. And the way this neighborhood like channels, for anybody in this neighborhood that wants to go to the grocery store, you can either drive there, which I think is what most people do. Yeah. But the people who choose to walk there, you're basically going to be funneled either through the intersection with the crosshatch, the last one we talked mm-hmm. about, or through this one where you're going to go across with the new crosswalk and then reach this kind of wretched, horrible, you know, yeah. despotic kind of street. Yeah, we went out there and measured it and... It has two 19-foot driving lanes, <laughs> which you could literally land an airplane yeah, you, on this street. You got 38 foot of pavement right there. <laughs> we were just looking at that going, what What in the world? Like why? There's no parking demand. Everything has a, a massively huge parking lot. Right. It's not like you have huge trucks that are coming through here and having these long trailers that you've got to do wide corners on. This is just literally like the access road to the mall. Mm -hmm. And you have these two super, super wide lanes with then the curb radius is going into them again, being like from an engineering speak, they're like 25, 30 foot radius. So you've got these wide sweeping curves and the cars just whip through here. Yeah. Kind of nasty. So what are we proposing? So basically what we're proposing is two 15 foot driving lanes. 15 foot. (laughs) It's bizarre that we're like, you know, narrowing the lanes to to 15 feet, (laughs) which is just, it's still, just still like insanely wide. Right. And then putting in an eight foot bike lane on one of the sides, right? Walk bike lane. Right. They didn't have that little decal, but to me it was like, let's create a safe place for people to actually exist in this corridor. Yeah. Right. It's funny because in some cities we work with, we like try to get, you know, 10 foot driving lanes. Yeah. Here. <laughs> 15. No, no. Can we please lower it down to 15? <laughs> yeah. Just insane. How much would that one? The total cost on that one is a whopping $96. You're joking Is me. what it would cost for paint. You're joking me. 96 96 bucks. bucks. That's all it would cost. 96 bucks to give people a decent corridor to walk in so they don't you know, have to dodge oncoming vehicles going at high speeds. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bucks. Project number six. Six. This is my, probably my second favorite one, just because it doesn't cost anything. It really all will cost is the time that it takes to go out there and do it, but it doesn't cost anything. It's tree trimming. So on the north edge of our subject neighborhood, there's a park called Mill Park. Yeah. Um, it's actually part of the, mill property the old paper mill property in the city i think leases or gets the land serious? yeah it's not actually a city park because across the highway there is mill park and i thought that that was well you just called it a highway yeah i did <laughs> it's our little neighborhood strode yeah i did call it a highway because it's it a county road like a highway. Right. it's a county 
across the county road is Mill Park. And I always thought that was the Mills family because no. we're the home of Mills Fleet Farm. Right. No, it's Mill Park because it's a Mill Park. Are you joking me? No. Really? See, I've been cursing the Mills family all these years <laughs> as being a bunch of cheap and also, bastards. Mill <laughs> Avenue is not, it's Mills. It's their last name has an S on the end. Right. right? It does have an S. Right. So. so this is Mill Park. Wow. Yeah. So this is all about the paper mill. It's all about the paper mill. I did not. You know what? That's fascinating. So we have Mill Park yeah. that is next to the paper mill. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, thanks. You taught me something about my yeah. hometown. I will still curse the Mills family, <laughs> but for very different reasons. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So you have this park on the north side, and there's nice trees. There are these large pine trees, but it divides the park and the residential area of this neighborhood. It's basically the only trees in the park. Yeah, they're beautiful trees, but it, they're in the wrong spot is it, what it comes down it, to. It serves as like a big wall. Right. So when you're sitting in this residence, you're looking out, you see this wall of trees mm-hmm. with actually the park on the other side. Yeah. So what we're saying for essentially no money, go out there and just trim up these trees to connect the park to the neighborhood, be able to get eyes on the park, you know, so people can see into it, just kind of tie the two together. The park needs to be utilized more because the only time anyone ever uses that park is for scheduled events. If it's softball night or scheduled t-ball or something no one ever you never see anyone going there for a picnic right no one passively uses i took note of this i mean we were out there a lot this summer only one time for the entire summer and that was the time that we were out there for the ride the rails thing yeah only one time all summer did i see a person in that park when it wasn't a scheduled event like you know organized ball or something like Mm -hmm. that and that person was actually like throwing balls off the mound at the fence. I know the police have had troubles over there. It's a great place if you want to be a hooligan because you can just go in the park and no one's going to see you because this wall of trees and, you know. So anyway, cool. Project number seven is park tree planting. Yeah. We went out there this summer with high school kids. They had a half day of school because it was homecoming. And I think they had something like 200 plus student volunteers that went out into the community and did projects you know, to make the community a better place. And the organizers of that event came to us and asked if we had anything that the students could do. Well, what we had was this park that we're talking about it has this wall of trees that separates the park from the neighborhood. And then on the back side of the outfield fences of this park, the backdrop is this mill industrial property. Yeah, it's, it's just an, hideous. It's a nasty, it's like the underbelly of the paper mill. Yeah. yeah, it's like yeah. here's where we throw all of our used crap and all of our equipment that doesn't work. And right, yeah, it's kind of nasty. But you know, I kind of understand because the park is essentially it was originally a part of this mill property. And they said, Hey, we're not using this. Do you want to use this for a park? Sure, great. So, growing up, my grandfather was a foreman at the paper mill, yeah. my dad worked at the mill. I had an uncle that actually worked there when it was closing. You know, he had been there a long, long time. Mm-hmm. The mill was very, very important part of the city. But when you look at this neighborhood, it goes gridded neighborhood houses and then street and then row of trees blocking off the view of the park. And then this park property, which itself is completely void of trees. And then this wide swath of crap and then the mill. And it's really like, gosh, couldn't we just move that wall of trees to the other side of the park so that the neighborhood could see the park and not... The mill? Yeah. So that's what we did. We went out there these high school kids and we planted 200 red pine saplings on the outside of the outfield fence. So we, you know, over time, it's going to take many, many years for these to grow up. But eventually, yeah, it will create this backdrop 
and screen, so you can't yeah. see the mill property. Yeah. Um, Project Seven to me, you know, it doesn't have the location of the trees, and the park in general doesn't have. There's no trees in that whatsoever, besides this edge and all those ones we planted. But not only the trees, but I mean, you look at this picture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hard packed dirt. It's there's just no nasty grass. weeds and yeah, yeah. You know, you have picnic tables and things out there. Nobody uses these facilities because no. it's nasty. Yeah, it's nasty. And so getting some nice maple trees, I actually was telling my wife, I'll say this on the podcast because we're not going to do it. Huh. <laughs> but I said, I'd yeah. like to sneak out at night and dig up some of the trees they put in the ditches on uh, College <laughs> Drive to kind of gussy it up, yeah. you know, yeah. and plant some of those in this park. They're going to be really nice shade trees someday. And College Drive, they'll be shade for, you know, the cars driving by. But Chuck, you realize that, you know, that's not the city's fault because how that road or street was financed. Yeah. You cannot use that money for landscaping. No, I know. I know the provocative parts of this report, you know, we have the different things, different projects, but then interspersed with that, we put what I would call provocative education in there. Mm -hmm. And this is probably my favorite piece in here. I, I have two images, one of the landscaping in the highway median or the Strode median on uh, this college drive project, a federal state funded, basically widening of a shortcut. And then right next to it, I've got vegetation from the park, this neighborhood park. And of course the stuff in the median on the Strode is got these beautiful daisies and it's nice landscaped and it's got great mulch and decorative lights. And then the park, the park where we actually expect people to be is just overgrown with weeds and hard packed, <laughs> nasty sand. Yeah. The images are harsh. It's like, you know, are these really our priorities? But I do kind of let the city off in a sense and say, you know, there's a reason why this happens. Mm -hmm. It's really not a reflection of your priorities or, or really even your fault, but there's a way we can deal with this. And so kind of go through and point out what those are. A little bit provocative, but I think fair. You've never been known to be provocative, Chuck. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So number eight Actually, if we're talking about favorite projects, yeah. this one's my favorite, yeah. my personal well, favorite. Go for it. Okay, number eight, boulevard tree planting. When you look at a neighborhood and you kind of try to ingest it, you know, and, and really get to know it well, in this particular neighborhood, there's one street, one of the streets where the streetcar used to go down that just has fantastic spacing to it. The buildings along it still retain a lot of their historical form. They front the street. There's a couple that have reversed themselves and front, you know, have basically the front and the back now. But most of the buildings front the street, most of them are lined up nicely. And both sides of the streets have really nice sidewalks. And the city engineering department hasn't come in and made the street excessively wide. So you have these nice, reasonably sized streets with parking on both sides with a boulevard that have these nice, huge, they're elm trees is what they are along there. Mm -hmm these gorgeous elm trees, and then the sidewalk. Here's the problem. Back when I was a kid, like when I was in middle school, we had Dutch elm disease come through. Hmm. And Dutch elm disease wiped out a whole bunch of these trees. And it was this epidemic. And they went around and, you know, when one would get Dutch elm disease, they would do like the, the swine flu thing where they the like, kill them all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they went out and they, you know, would take these things out. And then I, I don't know if they took them out and like burned them somewhere or what. But mm -hmm. the idea was, let's try to get rid of this. And a lot of them still survive. There's a lot of elm trees out there yet, but a lot of them were lost. The problem along this street is that 
there's wide stretches where there's no trees at all. Mm-hmm. No boulevard trees. And I don't know if this is at the owner's request. I don't know if the owners feel like they can't go in the city right away. I know the city would prefer not to have the trees. Mm-hmm. And I say that not because the city's anti-tree, but because, you know, who would be responsible for putting them there? The engineering department. Well, the engineering department is always struggling with people who, you know, don't touch my tree. I right. don't want you near my tree. So yeah. for them, like the fewer trees means the fewer problems in the future. It's sad to me because those things could have been growing for the last 20 years mm-hmm. and they've not been. I want to get out there and I counted 50 different trees along just this one stretch of street that if we went in and planted 50 trees, it would fill in that boulevard and it was not going to happen tomorrow, but over the next decade, over the next two decades, you could reestablish that canopy and make it really, really nice, not only for the homes, not only for the pedestrians, but just for the quality of that public realm would be really, really approved. That project, $2,750, so nothing that's going to, again, break the bank. Good? Yeah. I love that street. I really do. That's my favorite that, street in that neighborhood. By far the best one in that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. Sure. When we were out in Washington State and gave that talk at the infrastructure conference out there, a couple of engineers came up to us afterwards and said, look, we, we know our business model is changing. We know that we need to change and adapt and that the projects we're doing are not helping cities. What do we do differently? And this report was kind of an attempt to say, you know, look, here's what you do differently. So instead of being the engineering firm that goes out and recommends the one big, huge game changing project, you need to be the engineering firm or the engineering department or the city planning department or the the city that instead looks and says, how do we do a bunch of little projects, little projects that if they succeed, incredible. If they don't succeed, well, then why not? And let's learn from that and and do it differently. But we're really not out a bunch of money because it was just a little project. So (laughs) in that frame of mind, I wanted to make this feel okay to engineers. And I put together a cost estimate. This is the same kind of thing you'll find in any engineering report where there's a feasibility study. Went through and laid this all out and said, you know, here's how many feet of this we've got. Here's what the cost per foot is. And the total of our project, $16,746. That's the sum total of all the improvements that we're recommending in this neighborhood. Now, this is a city with a $13.1 million annual budget. Mm -hmm. So you think they'd be able to find 16 grand, right, to do these improvements, improvements that we've kind of demonstrated through the projects that we've done are needed, would be used, and would make people's lives better. To me, that's kind of the most powerful thing is that, look, it's not not a huge sum of money. Right. What do you think of that quote right there? Today, today the city is struggling to maintain the, quote, big projects of the prior generation. Part of what, you know, we're doing here is trying to point to a different model. And the next page here is probably, you know, the most stark contrast between the approach we're recommending and the current model. The current model is to go out and do the big project. You know, you put maintenance second or third on the list. You devote all your staff time, all your staff resources, and, you know, the bulk of your energy towards pursuing the big project. That's how we create growth. That's how we create jobs. The big project a couple years ago was this College Drive expansion. That's our strode with the pretty trees down the boulevard and the nice landscaping. $9.6 million dollars. 
the new big flashy job creation project is sewer water extension of the airport. Yeah. Yeah. They need it out there, Chuck. They absolutely need it. And fire protection. Yeah. What are they going to do if there's a fire? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe have a tank of water. Anyway, <laughs> instead of putting a couple hundred thousand dollar tank out there, the city has gotten through the state bonding bill. They're basically borrowed money that our legislators are able to funnel to the city. Going to get $7.1 million to essentially gamble on future growth out at the airport. What we wanted to do is lay out the difference and just say, okay, let's show how much growth we actually need to have these projects make sense. Our little $16,700 project in the neighborhood, a very modest risk, but let's subject that to the same type of expectation. In fact, we even increased the expectation on ours to say, you know, instead of waiting for a 20-year payback window, let's make it a five-year payback window. What type of increase in property values would we need to have in order to justify these projects? For our expansion project of our Strode and for our airport extension project, all the running the sewer and water a couple miles out of town of the airport, the city would need to bring in over $120 million to make those projects pay. That's $120 million of new private sector investment. And that's money that would just be to cover what we've invested. That doesn't include any cost that would go along with increased snow plowing, ditch mm -hmm. mowing, police protection, fire protection, any other costs that would be needed out there. Our little neighborhood, on the other hand, if we were going to do all these projects over the next five years, we would need an increase of less than a million dollars, 674000 in order to have these things result in a net plus for the city. Now, you look at that in relation to the existing tax base, and it's, it's peanuts. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's basically saying a handful of people decide to look at this neighborhood, consider it, buy homes here, invest. That is a very, very attainable goal and a very small risk. I step back and I look at this, and this is what my takeaway is. If this city or any city wanted to put together a portfolio of small little projects, not only is it doable on a local budget, we don't have to run to the legislature for bonding. We don't have to spend hours and hours of filling out grant applications and begging for money. We can literally go out and do this stuff on our budget today and see improvements right now. Not only can we do it today, not only will it directly benefit our residents. I mean, there's no question if we paint a bike lane out there, people's lives are going to be better off. Maybe not everybody's, and maybe people who don't bike will say, I don't like it and it doesn't. But you're only investing $5,000. It's not like you're taking the city's wealth and future wealth. Right. So this is going to have a direct benefit, a direct benefit for people who live here now today. But the notion that you actually could get a return on your investment, you actually get more money back, you actually grow your tax base and the wealth of your community is just huge. If we had a portfolio of these projects throughout every neighborhood of the city and did them year in and year out, incrementally growing these places, we would see huge returns. We would see huge returns over time. You contrast that with the desperation growth projects we do now, the Hail Marys, the kind of just mindless inertia of the strode widening and the you know running of sewer and water all over the countryside. You say, wow, we're risking so little 
And the potential gain is so much in this neighborhood's first small incremental approach. I don't know. It's tough to even compare them because it's not even close. No, it's it's not not. even close. Say you spend $5,000 on a bike lane. You spend $5,000 on paint to stripe this bike lane. You're probably not going to see a return of $5,000 within that five years, but you do a collection of these projects together and you just, you bring the neighborhood up as a whole, you know, at the end of it, 15, 20 years, you will see the neighborhood being a better place and more valuable. It's tough to quantify on a a project by project basis. But yet I think that if this city were to dedicate itself to making these small incremental improvements year in and year out, little things throughout the neighborhood as a whole, right? Put a crosswalk here, fix this bit of sidewalk here, make the, you know, plant these trees, make the neighborhood just incrementally more livable for the people that are there. I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to think we could raise the values of this depressed neighborhood by a hundred percent, you know, double the values over the next decade. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's even like a far flung goal. These property values out there are already depressed because you know, this neighborhood and the others like it have been neglected for decades. Right. A little bit of TLC is going to go a long, long ways to making these places more valuable, literally improving the bottom line of the city. Last thing. And that is where people can get a copy of this report. What's your betterbrainerd site? Betterbrainerd.org. What do we got on that site? Um, So on the betterbrainerd.org site, we have a list of all the projects and events we've had. And then we kind of document, you know, like the snapshot Brainerd. We have a little write-up of what we did. We have the materials on there in case people want to replicate it or do it in their own communities. So we have each of the events listed and then each of the small projects we've done are listed there with um, a write-up and a cost analysis of each of those. We've also been doing a blog periodically on the front page. So there you can find little tidbits of, I guess it's sort of like a Strong Towns experimental type. Yeah, it's like a little lab. Yeah, Yeah. it's a lab, right. Well, and the idea is we want people to copy this stuff too. I mean, this is our model, but we're putting it out there for people to copy. We should probably acknowledge the Bremer Foundation who paid for the first year of this and have helped make this project possible and kind of give us the latitude to be able to go out and try some things here and put them out there. And so if you're interested in this approach, if you are, you know, from Minnesota, great, get a hold of us. Uh, we can probably come over to you, do a curbside chat, meet with you, talk to you about this better branded approach and, and how we can adapt it to where you're at. If you're out of state, we'd like to talk to you as well. We're actually looking for a handful of communities around the country who would be interested in moving ahead with this kind of approach, very low cost, high return, low risk kind of approach. Get a hold of us. We'd love to chat with you. The report can be found on Strong Towns too. I put it on the front page. If you just go to strongtowns.org, you won't miss it. It's called Neighborhoods First. It's right there on the front page, jumping out at you. Download the report, go through it, send it to your city council, use it, adapt it, copy it and paste your name on it and the name of your streets. There's no plagiarism here. Everything we do is completely open for everybody else to use. Hey, nice work, dude. I need a little more practice on this podcast thing, but no, nice thanks work for having on the me podcast. on. Oh, nice, nice work, work in on general? The neighborhood, oh, wow. On the neighborhood. I'll man. take that. Thank you. Just in a closing, you're actually looking to buy a home in this neighborhood. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm really excited. I've talked to the banker. I have 
most of that worked out and I've been looking. It's amazing how low a house in that neighborhood, yeah. the mortgage would be cheaper than my current rent. Yeah, payment. isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's insane. And you know what makes me really happy is that as you and I have hung out in this neighborhood and yeah. gotten to know it and spent some time looking kind of intimately at the homes there, I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. It's a know? nice place. I mean, right. haven't you? hasn't it kind of grown on you? It, honestly, coming in when we started this project, you'd always... It gets oh a bad my gosh. reputation. People from the yeah. city were, you know, people around town were like, why would you pick that neighborhood? It's, yeah. it's dumpy. It's run down. Everybody there is a transient. Nobody cares. Yeah. I haven't found that to be the case at all. No, it's been great. It the has people been living great. there have been awesome to work with and talk to. It's, it's mm-hmm. been really fun. From a sentimental standpoint, this is the neighborhood my grandma lived in. You know, this is where we'd go see grandma. Mm-hmm. Her house is still there. It's one of the stops on our ride the rails tour. Yeah. <laughs> It's just neat to see Graham's house and see someone there taking care of it. I would love to see you living in this neighborhood. I'd love to live in this neighborhood. We need to bring this place back. And there's cities all over the country that have similar neighborhoods that we need to bring back too. So this is the challenge. This is the challenge of the next generation of planners and engineers and city builders, I think. Thanks, dude. Hey, thanks for having me. Yep. And thank you out there for listening, everybody. Take care and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. about six years now and when I first moved there I had a huge fear I was gonna get mugged constantly like every time I left the house I was like here it comes someone's gonna take everything I got over my fear because I learned a trick and now I use this trick all the time whenever I think someone might try to beat me up or mug me I fake a Russian accent you're welcome it's genius I'll be walking home late at night Two dangerous looking thugs walk up to me like, yo man, you know what neighborhood you're in? You think this bad neighborhood? (laughs) Russians are the scariest white people. They've earned it. I'm so scared of them that I guarantee you if I was lost, dangerously lost, there is no way I'd ask a Russian for directions. Just real quick, like, sir, help me. Please help me. How do I get to the subway? The subway. <laughs> Walk down the street and turn corner. <laughs> yeah, screw that. I think I'm just going to stay lost. <laughs>